Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today employment consultant David King from Robert Half says the four-day work week will become a reality within five years. Disability Without Poverty National Director Rabia Khodor has an update on the new Canada Disability Benefit, soon to become law. And Ipsos polling president Daryl Bricker has some numbers on what we expect from the New Deal under negotiation right now on health care. So, let's get started. According to a recent survey conducted by the folks at Robert Half Canada, 91% of senior managers support a work week of four 10-hour days for their team. And 69% of them say their companies will implement it within the next five years. Here to talk more about it, after all, it's their survey, is the Senior Managing Director of Human Resources at Robert Half. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to David King, joining us from Toronto. Mr. King, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us, David. How long ago did you conduct this survey among uh, managers across the country? Yeah, this was done in the last quarter, so the information we have is quite recent regarding the trends towards the four-day work week. So it's uh, now the the uh, as I understand the results there and and, and pointed out, uh, the work week is four ten-hour days. That's the standard interpretation of the four-day work week. Correct. That's right. For the purposes of this survey, we indicated it would be the same number of hours worked, just compressed into four days versus the traditional five. So when did this start? I mean, you and I have not talked about it, David, uh, together, but this conversation has been going on for years, and some companies have been experimenting with it for quite some time. When did it solidify as something corporate executives knew they had to add to their agenda? Yeah, as you said, this is not a new concept that's been out there for a long, long time, well before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I think what what we have seen is during the pandemic, people have started to reflect and and maybe reprioritize how they engage with their professional lives as well as their personal lives. And so this is one other example we're seeing in the workforce where employees are asking for some choice and flexibility as to how they structure their lives around the engagement and intersection between personal uh, and work. And because of that, and there's a new feature to be included, and I have to ask you the following question, David. Do do those four 10-hour days involve being at work or at home or both? Well, I think that's uh, another great question that is yet to be answered because companies are, are struggling with that at the moment. I think the theme here is this uh, idea of choice and flexibility that employees are looking for and companies are trying to accommodate while still being able to achieve the performance expectations of their companies. And so in addition to the four-day work week idea, as you said, there's the concept of whether that will be four days in an office, out of an office, or a mix of both, which is the, really, that is the trend we're seeing is some sort of hybrid model where there's some time spent in office, some time spent Uh, remote and working uh, at home or wherever you choose to work. You talked about performance expectations, which in the uh, the corporate executive mind translates very quickly into productivity. Uh, and so that's the concern or has been the concern from the get-go about working from home. But of course, under circumstances beyond most of our control, uh, people were, do- were working from home uh, despite any uh, consideration to the contrary. How have you found 
found, David, after a couple of years of this model now being very much at play, what what corporate executives, and you do these surveys nationally all the time, what are top brass people telling you about their comfort with current productivity levels? I think everybody generally acknowledged a spike in productivity that occurred in the middle of the pandemic. Um, that was probably driven by the reality that that was your only option at that time. Sure. It was a focus of working because you had no other option to even leave your home in many cases. Uh, that has normalized, certainly post the pandemic. We've seen productivity levels come down a little and become much more in line with what you may have seen before the pandemic. That being said, this type of option for four-day work week or the structure around a hybrid environment is all about that choice and flexibility. And what that does offer is a company's ability to attract talent in an environment when the labor market is still very, very tight. We saw the labor results last week come out and again, exceptional job growth in Canada and and an unemployment rate at 5%, which is still exceptionally low. So you're looking to try to attract great talent. You want to retain that talent and engage them at a very high level. And all of that equates to productivity and happiness amongst your employee group, which does achieve all the stakeholder expectations, both from the employee and the company standpoint. We heard a lot about the great resignation over the last couple of years, David. People just uh, saying enough of this stuff. I'm just, I'm out of here. How, and we heard more about it from south of the border than we did up here, but how much has that happened, this great resignation, this notion that a lot of younger workers just were dissatisfied with their current situation to the point where they just walked? Has that been a thing? Well, I, I think it's not so much to be interpreted that people are no longer, you know, as happy with their their job or their company or their manager as it is that they're just starting to reprioritize and maybe ex- establish more balance between what's important to them personally, what's important to them professionally. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this this happened you know, during that time of the pandemic where you had lots of time to reflect. And yep. people came out of that period trying to reestablish and recontract with their professional world uh, as well as their personal responsibilities and and what they have as goals in their own lives. And so I think that what we're seeing is that people are saying, look, uh, I want to make sure that I'm in balance here. And when I'm in balance, I'm happier and that's good for everybody. So everything that can be achieved and possibly accommodated to give me that balance, whether it be four day work week, whether it be a hybrid structure or other benefits that we're hearing from employees that they're seeking Uh, that's going to be something that will be ultimately good if it can be achieved in balance for both the company and the employee. And my opening uh, comments, based on your numbers too, David, 69-70% of senior managers anticipate their companies will implement this four-day work week within the next five years. Did that time frame surprise you at all? Well, I I think time will tell whether that actual data point becomes reality it didn't surprise me at all in that we are hearing this every day as we speak to companies in canada who are looking to hire and in turn people that they're looking to hire giving us feedback that these types of trends are not only coming they're here now and i think that employers are going to be best served if they really do look at their employees almost like they would as their customers as their clients Mm -hmm. how can we how can we make that employee group as happy as possible and as engaged as possible because clearly the returns then are good for everybody. You get very satisfied employees. You likely reduce turnover, which is very, very good for an organization. Sure. And you do achieve all the productivity expectations you want, but at the same time, 
you have employees who feel very, very connected to their employer. And that's a good result overall. And, and again, a lot of that just boils down to communication, doesn't it, David? What do you expect from this company if we hire you? And of course, the person on the other side of the desk gets to say, so what, are, what, what can I expect from this company if I choose to go to work here? It's a two-way street every time around, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, you can't underestimate the importance of clear, transparent communication. And I think that a, a willingness by our, our company to try to meet you halfway, try to accommodate the preferences around choice and flexibility you have, that kind of sincerity and being genuine as an employer goes a very, very long way. It doesn't mean that you have to accommodate every request. And at some point, you do understand there may have to be a decision that you can't continue to accommodate in certain areas. And that's okay. But I think to your point, this ability and willingness to genuinely listen, Mm -hmm. sit and take information back, That's the important uh, aspect of the trend towards these changes we're seeing. And finally, David, I guess some of your clients and some of the business executives that you speak with uh, as an employment professional uh, are resisting this because that's just not the way it's always been done. And I would imagine the advice would go something to the tune of you better be ready to listen and you better have a little more flexibility built in or you're going to get the short end of the stick here. Well, yeah, I think that the labor market environment we're currently in uh, at 5% um, and certainly the desire, it appears, for companies to still look to hire in the coming year still puts a lot of that power into negotiation of the employee group. And I think that companies that are choosing not to listen to some of these trends and not reflect on their own organization and how they may be able to align with these trends may very well find themselves in a difficult position about the ability to attract talent. I mean, this is all about ensuring the well-being of your employee group, whether it be mental wellness, overall health and happiness, and accommodating what they're looking for to balance their lives. And if you're not able or willing to get in line with that kind of thinking, it could prove difficult, especially if the labor market continues to be as lean as it is. Interesting stuff. Hey, a lot of attention what's going on out there. David King, thanks for this. Great to have you on the show. We appreciate your joining us very much. Great to be here. Have a good day. It's, uh, well, there, uh, here's a disturbing uh, fact. One in five Canadians are disabled. Two in five Canadians who are poor are disabled. The Canadian Disability Benefit will help change that. We're talking about something called Bill C-22, or the Canada Disability Benefit Act. MPs voted unanimously to pass it late last week. It is now making its way through the Canadian Senate, and there are groups that say this will make a major difference in many people's lives. Here to talk more about it is Rabia Khudr, who is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty, joining us from Ontario. Ontario this morning. Rabia, good morning and thanks for being with us today. Good morning and thank you for the perfect pronunciation of my name. <laughs> it is my pleasure, the very least I could do. Tell us a little bit about Bill C-22. Well, C-22 is a uh, game changer. It's really, really substantive systems change. Uh, it is a top-up benefit designed or intended to be designed after the Guaranteed Income Supplement for Seniors mm-hmm. and the Canada Child Benefit. So essentially, there are 52 poverty lines across this country, and most disability benefits are provincially administered, and those provincial benefits are 
maybe 40% below that poverty line. So people with disabilities are living in deep, deep, deep poverty. It is hoped that this top-up benefit will get them to at least the poverty line. Robbie, is the, the provincial benefit, and you're, you're quite right, so far most of that money is coming from the provincial level. I'm assuming from your description that it's not even equal from province to province to province either, is it? Oh, it varies across the country from anywhere from no specific disability benefit to maybe about $900 a month to you know, Alberta being the highest around 1700 or something with supplements. But for the most part, like, for example, Ontario just increased its rates this year to $1,227, whereas the poverty line in Toronto, for example, is just over $2,000. Right. So with this uh, C-22, the Canada Disability Benefit Act, once it clears the Senate and becomes law, becomes proclaimed, will that top up at least get a a person living in poverty currently in Toronto up to what they call the poverty line? Well, that's what we are hoping for. We are hoping for the fact that it gets them to the poverty line, if not above. And what Canadians need to recognize, though, that... For people with disabilities, that general poverty line applies to the able-bodied population. For people with disabilities, that poverty line is even higher because it costs more to live with a disability. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, those who qualify for this particular top-up benefit. And we don't know the dollar amount either, do we yet? We don't know the dollar amount and we don't know the specific eligibility criteria, but we are here advocating for all that to be done collaboratively through co-creation with people with lived experience, people with disabilities. All of that will be addressed through regulations. The law is going to be a framework bill. We want the bill fast-tracked into law to achieve royal assent as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. this spring. And we want the benefit budgeted this fall, which means we need our public servants to work really hard and really quick to get the regulations in place, to get the partnership agreements in place with provinces. And we need to make sure as people with disabilities that we're heard loud and clear with our provincial governments that they are not to claw back this new federal benefit, that it shouldn't be that one hand gives and the other hand takes away. Right. The point is it's a top up, not an offset. So you can reduce at the provincial level and direct monies to uh, to other points. That's that's not the they would have the province would have completely missed the point of the bill if they tried to pull that stunt, wouldn't they? Yes. And could they pull that stunt? Yes, they can. And that's why the power of the people is fundamental. As people with disabilities, people who care about people with disabilities, allies, supporters, friends and organizations, we have to come together and, and, and raise awareness amongst our provincial MLAs and M- M- MPPs, etc. Uh, Rabia, why has the bill been written so vaguely in terms of not specific numbers and those sorts of things? And, and you're talking about now that it, it, it's or hoping that it will be proclaimed quickly and then start to fill in those blanks. So those blanks were de- deliberately written into the bill. Why do you think that was? Well, if we put a specific number in today, that number today may be okay. But what about 10 years from now? What about 50 years from now? You know, laws are very difficult to change. Regulations can be tweaked as we go along. 
far easily than laws can. What you don't want is today introduce a benefit and 50 years from now have a government who comes in and says, oh, those disabled people don't deserve that. We Mm want to just, you know, push them back into poverty. We can't afford to pay them all this money. Oh, we'll just take it away. Yeah. So the there now, as I understand it, the the legislation is written to it's a tax free monthly subsidy to low income Canadians with disabilities. And here's the kicker: under the age of sixty five, Rabia. So what happens to a disabled person who who qualifies for this supplement, uh, who turns sixty five and becomes a senior citizen? Do the senior benefits, the Pen Canada Pension Plan and OAS, would that offset? the money that they would have received prior to it under the uh, the Disability Benefit Act? Well, right now what happens across this country is when people transition from age 64 into seniors' benefits and move off of disability supports, they actually end up with more money. So seniors right now, for the most part, have access to more money than people with disabilities of working age. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So we're just looking at, let's bring this one significant group of the population to a reasonable level. We're not saying that this bill is going to be the be-all and end-all and fix everything mm-hmm. for disabled people. If we wait for perfection, we will end up with nothing, especially in, in the case of a minority government. We have something on the table that we need to make sure happens, and then we can advocate for more. We recognize that being a senior with a disability also costs more. We can advocate for seniors with disabilities to, to have access to more supports and more benefits that they need. This is what's on the table. We, we cannot neglect this group any longer. So now you were talking about getting on, the, getting on it and getting something happening really quickly. One strong indicator of the government's willingness to go along with that, Rabia, would be to have uh, the finance minister include funding for the Canada Disability Benefit, the new one, uh, built into the new budget, which is due in just a matter of weeks. Are you expecting that? Well, we would we would love to see money in the budget. We want to see that money in the budget in 2023. That's what we're calling on the finance minister to do. We know that we need the regulations in place for funds to flow to people with disabilities. We are encouraging uh, everyone to continue working in the spirit of, of unity and, and you know the, the beauty of our parliamentary system that's been demonstrated. You know, all parties mobilized to get this bill this far. We're hoping the same spirit continues in the Senate, that there's no necessarily proposed amendments that then start pushing the bill back to the House of Commons. That'll just cause unnecessary delay. Right. We just want to get this through because we cannot have a disabled person who is in a precarious financial situation think that they have to exercise their legal right to die because they cannot live with dignity due to the extreme poverty that they experience. Yeah, that's, and that's... we cannot have somebody suggest medical assistance in dying to them as a solution here, here. to their quality of life. Absolutely. So does it surprise you or has it surprised you that in a house fairly divided, and I'm talking about the House of Commons, you did receive significant and unanimous support? Well, we are very pleased because 22% of the Canadian population identifies with disabilities. We know that that number is higher given, you know, COVID and long COVID now as well. 
And disability touches every one of us. We're glad that our parliamentarians recognize the people with disabilities in their lives and recognize the fact that this is one minority group that we are all capable of being a part of at a, at a, at a, at a stage in our lives that we need to do right by disabled people as, as a, a nation that praises itself as a first world country, that we cannot have our people with disabilities living in deep, deep poverty. I cannot fathom myself, if I wasn't able to work as a blind woman, being on ODSP would, in Ontario would have really um, impacted my quality of life and my ability to contribute to my society. Mm-hmm. Rabia, thank you for bringing this uh, to our attention this weekend. Uh, the new disability benefit hopefully will make a major difference in many people's lives as it progresses through the process. We'd like to be able to tap into you and uh, have some more conversations about this, particularly if it gets bogged down and they need a good shot in the ribs. How about that? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Amid chaos in hospitals and workers leaving the other day, the Liberals revealed a $46.1 billion health care deal, which the premiers of Canada promptly called disappointing. But they also didn't reject the new money, and in fact, there's another meeting scheduled for this week in which the premiers are fully expected to, well, accept the money. Uh, the folks at Ipsos have been doing some surveying about what Canadians want when it comes to health care funding. Daryl Bricker is the the president of Ipsos Polling and has some of those results with us this morning. Daryl, good morning and welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back, Sterling. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you with us. A lot of dough on the table here. How do, can, well, you, you took a survey of Canadians before this meeting took place, mm-hmm. Daryl, and before the, the offer was tabled. What did Canadians tell you their expectations were? Well, they, they expected two things. One, they expected that the government should put more money in, which obviously they've followed up and, and done. Uh, but they also expected that the provincial governments, the provincial premiers, uh, would have some sort of plan as to how the money was going to be used. Now, obviously, the federal government has some views on that, too, but that there would be some agreement between the two groups as to how the money was going to be used to improve the system. So both have an obligation. So the feds have been, so far in the Trudeau era, the last seven years specifically, the feds have been very big on attaching conditions to new federal money dedicated to health care, despite the fact that health care is 100% a provincial jurisdiction, the Canada Health Act is federal. So therefore, the feds feel somewhat justified in attaching these conditions. What do Canadians feel about those conditions, the strings that go along with the deal, Daryl? Well, they don't necessarily understand what the strings are, and they don't necessarily understand what the, uh, uh, you know, who has responsibility in all of this. What they do understand is that when they go to the hospital these days or they try to find a doctor that they can visit, that the uh, experience is, uh, uh, as far as they're concerned, not what they would expect from the healthcare system that we're all so proud of. Right. So it doesn't really matter who's responsible for what. They're all responsible. So all governments have a responsibility for dealing with health care. So when we go out and we ask people, for example, what's the most important provincial issue on the agenda? 
healthcare is at the top of the list, along with, you know, inflation, housing, some other things. Same thing for the federal government. So it's not like Canadians see a distinction. They want everybody working together on this. Well, and of course, you know, you, you, uh, we, we could have had this conversation, you and I have had a few over the years, Daryl, and which you do national surveys, and we talked about this, prior to provincial and federal elections. And it never changes, does it, in terms of scratch a Canadian and find out about his or her primary concerns, healthcare is always top three, isn't it? Well, this, yes, it is, Sterling, but the character of the issue has changed. And that's what's new and unique in this current circumstance that we're in. Previously, when people would say that, they were saying 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I'm worried that this system that I want to count on or I am counting on is not going to be there for me. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying it's not working for me today. Right. So it's become, yes, it's a high priority issue, but there's a degree of urgency around the issue now that what that wasn't there previously. That was people speculating into the future rather than talking about what the circumstance is right now. So now we've got a provincial election coming up this year in Alberta, another one here in British Columbia within a year for sure. Same at the federal level and possibilities in both B.C. and nationally exist that those could go before the uh, obligatory date. So how much is healthcare delivery going to play out, uh, not only in Alberta next door in a couple of months, but across the country as these polls and these election cycles come around, Daryl? Well, there's two things on this, Sterling. One of them is uh, when people are negative about what's going on around something that they count on, it's incumbents that usually take the most heat Mm -hmm. um, because they've been in power. So, you know, what have you done? There's a record to uh, either attack or defend. Uh, But on the partisan side of this, they really don't, the public really doesn't have a sense of whether conservatives, liberals, or the NDP would do a better job. Right. They think the NDP would care more. They think the liberals would probably care more, but they think the conservatives, because they're supposed to be better managers, might do a better job of managing how the money is spent. So it's a bit confusing, and we'd have to work it through the course of an election campaign. Sure, but the conservatives at this point have had very little to say in terms of positives about the health care system. It's easy to say Canada is broken and provide uh, an abundance of details to support that point. However, uh, that's your, your role as opposition is not just to oppose. Your role is also to, pre- to present uh, the other side. What would you do if you were running the show today? And frankly, there's not a lot of, well, here's here's what we would do differently for Canadians to reflect on. Would you agree? Uh, well, that's, you know, in the ideal set of circumstances, that's what we would hope. But we're not in an era of politics in which that's the case. Yeah. So the, 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 so the defense of, you know, government saying, well, you know, these are our ideas, what are your ideas? Mm-hmm. It's not as important as matching the mood of the way the electorate is is feeling. So if the, if the electorate is feeling angry, uh, in need of change and feeling like somebody else is going to just shake things up, regardless of where the cards fall, when they do fall. Uh, if that's the mood that you're trying to match, then just attacking is, is probably not a bad strategy. The people who want to sort through all of the, you know, the options one way or the other for the various parties are people who are way into politics. Mm-hmm. And they're treating it kind of like a graduate seminar. Right. That's not the way. That's not the way partisan politics works these days. At least as far as the electorate is concerned. Let's talk it's about more about matching the mood. Mm-hmm. And the Canada Health Act, the federally administered Canada Health Act, despite the provincial jurisdiction involved, uh, does. Uh, it, it, it's come under some criticism lately. Uh, and in Ontario, they're starting to see the Ford government opening up a little more privatization angle, which we in BC have enjoyed for a long time, as they have in Quebec. Um, what about the? 
Canada Health Act and Canadians' attitudes towards the rigid nature of the system? Well, right now, they're so concerned about the current circumstances that we find ourselves in, this belief that the healthcare system today may not be able to take care of us, Mm -hmm. that they're willing to consider options. So the, the, the issue with private money is it, it, it's, there's really two conversations that take place. There's the one that the governments that are considering this want to take place, which is you still pay with your you know, provincial health card. You don't have to take out a checkbook or pay anybody cash or right. take out a credit card. It's just provided by a private sector um, organization. So that's the one the governments want to have. The people who are opposed to it, they want to talk about checkbook healthcare and American style healthcare. Not about private delivery, but as though anytime you went into contact with the healthcare system you'd have to whip out your credit card. Mm. So that's where that comes out. I know Canadians, uh, when you ask them on surveys, definitely don't want that American style system, but they're also looking at their current system and saying, you know, this is not sustainable even in the short term. So we need to consider things. So again, emotion rationality there's a whole bunch of stuff that fits into this and there are other other models an abundance of evidence from europe and among other places that there are there are alternatives that actually work daryl bricker thanks for this always a pleasure to talk to you sir we'll we'll do it again soon thanks for having me on Sterling. thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings i'm sterling fox have a great week